You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. Hey, good morning. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Refuge. Um, hey, Refuge is a new church launching, starting in South Austin in late 2020, COVID-dependent, of course. If you don't know a lot about us, I encourage you jump back into the video description. Click on the connections link. Uh, man, send us some info. Let us know how we can pray for you. We would love to do that. In addition to sharing a bit more about who we are, what we do, uh, in addition to just more information about this Jesus that we're always talking about, right? Uh, but hey, today, what we're doing right now is we're jumping into our time in the Word, uh, and we're going to be continuing our series in Acts entitled A Movement for the Modern World. Uh, we're going to be continuing in chapter 4 today. And I'm excited about today's sermon because I feel like it's applicable to where we are. We're going to be covering the theme of persecution. And I know that when you hear that, you're like, persecution doesn't feel real applicable right now. Like, as Americans, we don't really feel the weight of persecution like that. And you're right about that. But persecution really falls under the umbrella of a bigger theme, and that theme is the theme of suffering. And persecution really gives us and shows us the reality that, that man, no matter how godly you are, you can still suffer, right? Matthew 5.45 says, For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you're a godly person or the worst of sinners, you will suffer during your life. And the scriptures give a really clear reason for this. It's not because we live in a karmic world where good is paid for good, et cetera, et cetera. It's the reason we experience suffering at the rate we do is because we live in a broken world, right? Humanity has collectively turned its back on God and, and, and the world has, has brokenness in it. And as a result, when we engage in that brokenness, it has a name. When we interact with it, that name is suffering. We all experience it. And if you haven't noticed, it seems like we have an abundance of suffering going on right now, right? I mean, like four weeks or no, 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 three months into a pandemic, three weeks into us wrestling the reality of racism in our country, a week into a financial recession. And it's clear that there is suffering to be had. Um, and, and I'm confident that as I'm talking to you right now, wherever you are, that you're probably wrestling through some kind of suffering as well. Uh, maybe, you know, you are uh, in a group that has experienced racism, or maybe even you're not, but you're wrestling with the realities of racism, burdened by it, feeling a sense of urgency and a desire to make a difference and don't know which way to go. Uh, man, maybe you're like me and you're months into the pandemic and you're wrestling with feelings uh, of sadness and isolation um, and apathy, right? Not caring about much, kind of feeling lazy. Maybe uh, you are scared that you're going to lose your job, right? Maybe you're scared uh, that you already lost your job. Maybe you're fearful about the financial future because you already lost it. Maybe you're worried about the virus and it impacting family or yourself. Man, the reality is what I'm getting at is that we are all probably in a position to be suffering right now. And if you're not, I want to lovingly let you know to, as a friend, right, that, that suffering is coming at some point. Now, as we approach the text today, we're going to thankfully take a look at how the apostles and disciples respond to suffering uh, and pain. We're going to take a look at how the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, relying on God, um, really respond to these moments of great challenge. And today's sermon is entitled, The Promise of Hope. 
because I believe the scriptures are going to show us that understanding the hope we have in Jesus is the only way we can navigate um, suffering well. I'm going to say that again, that understanding the promised hope we have in Jesus is the only way we can navigate through suffering well. I want to go ahead and dive in. Again, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. We're picking up at verse 23. And this comes right after Peter and John had been arrested and really put before the whole Sanhedrin, which is almost like Congress, if you could think of it like that. Uh, and man, they responded to this moment of persecution in an epic way, right? This young guy, Peter, who just a few weeks ago was deserting Jesus and scared, is confronted with people saying, stop teaching Jesus. And this young guy is like, like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey God and not you. I don't know what, you, what you're talking about. And so it's an epic moment. But, but the thing is, last week showed how Peter and John respond to persecution. What makes our text this week unique is that when we arrive at verse 23, it begins to unveil the story of how the entire community collectively together responds to suffering. So look at verse 23, where it says that they went back to their own people and shared what happened. They shared what happened. Now, this is a side note because I don't have time to go into this in detail through the course of today's sermon. But friends, just look at what happens here. Share your burdens with your friends. Share your burdens with somebody. Okay, what we're going to read about today, it's only, it only happened and was only possible because they went through it together, not alone. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you're not meant to carry your burden by yourself. Working through suffering is a team game. It's not an isolation game. It's not done by yourself. It's done within the context of spiritual family. And so I want you, even right now, before we dive in to the rest of this sermon, I want you to resolve in your heart right now, uh, man, even if you need to pause this video, resolve in your heart that you're going to go share your burdens with somebody that you care about. Man, share them with your community group. Share them, uh, man, with your, your friends, with the people you're discipling, with the people that are discipling you, with the people you're reaching out to and inviting to things. Man, share your burdens with each other. It's critical in how we navigate through suffering and burdens well. Now, side note over, but they do share with uh, their friends, with their brothers, with their sisters, their fellow believers, and they respond by praying praying. Now that again is a whole other sermon by itself, the importance of prayer. Uh, but, but I believe that the author of Acts is pointing us to something uh, that we should focus on more, and that is what the prayer reveals about the heart and mind, the hearts and minds of the disciples, of the believers. And there's three things, three key takeaways that I want us to draw out as we look at the heart and mind of these people. Uh, one is that they glorified God. One, they glorified God. Two, is that they were rooted in the word. They were rooted in the word. And three, they trusted God with their lives. Okay, they trusted God with their lives. Let's go ahead and start with they glorified God. Uh, what does it mean to glorify God? I think if you've been in church for a while, especially if you've been in churches where the Reformed circle theologically is, is kind of where you, you hang out, then you've heard the idea of glorifying God a lot. But a lot of times we still don't know what the heck that means. Uh, and so really it's, it's kind of a way to make it easy is this. Uh, man, a really an easy way to think of glorifying God is making much of God. Right, A practical way we do that in our lives is when we ascribe to God the beautiful attributes that are really already true about him. Right, We ascribe to God beautiful attributes that are already true about him. That still might be confusing, so I want to go ahead and give you an example right from the text. All right, Take a look at the image that's on your screen right now. 
Look at how many times these people ascribe, this group, the disciples, ascribe uh, to God beautiful attributes. In verse 24, they call him the master and the maker of everything. In verse 25, they describe him as being eternal by saying he spoke through their father, David. In verse 28, they describe God as being control even over Jesus' suffering. In verse 30, they describe the Lord stretching out his hands of healing. And so glorifying God is making much of him. And a common way we do that in our hearts is by ascribing beautiful, true attributes that are, that are already true about him. But, but in this context, I want you to notice something, that the disciples, men, they ascribe these beautiful attributes of God to God as a comfort for themselves in the middle of their suffering. Do you see that? In the middle of their pain, Man, they are actually zoning in and thinking of God's character, and that's the thing they're clinging to to bring them relief from their suffering. They didn't begin by looking to the future. They began by looking to the one for whom the future is really the past, right? They acknowledged his rule over everything. They acknowledged that he was sovereign, this word sovereign. And really what that means is that there is nothing happening now, then, in the future that is outside of God's control. Okay, he, he sees the situation that they're in. He sees the situation that you're in. He sees the situation that we're in. He sees it. He sees us, right? He sees you. And the thing is, he's guiding the situation, not out of some angry, sadistic rage, but rather he's doing it to bring healing. His hand is meant for healing those who are his sons and his daughters. And this is critical for us, friends. This is critical to notice that these people in the midst of their suffering begin to look to and give glory to God and ask and really are in in a position of hoping that it's the character of God that's going to bring them hope. It's important to notice that because let's think about how we sometimes can respond to suffering, right? Let's go ahead and let's, uh, let's go ahead and be real with each other. All right. And let's hope keeping it real does not go wrong, but let's be real with each other for a second and let's be let, how do we respond to suffering right what about self-reliance how many of us can get self-reliant in the middle of suffering right right how many of us can forget or even struggle to believe that god is in control and as a result we feel we start the process of clinging to ourselves in the middle of suffering believing that it is all up to us to get ourselves out of the situation that we are in and then we start confronting the discouragement that sets in when we can't dig ourselves out of the the, the really the, the situation that we're in right we, we start feeling that keep you up at night type of pressure that comes when we are are, are shouldering the burden on our own that, that we have to get ourselves out of the situation how much of a relief would it be for us how much of a relief is god inviting us into okay when he calls us to remember that he is in control Right? That doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. The disciples are doing something, but rather that we can find comfort in the reality that we're doing something under the control and sovereignty of God, that he is in control. What about resentment? What about resentment in the middle of suffering? I don't know, we all wanna be good Christians here, but, but if you're like me, this is the one, man. This is the one. Maybe I don't forget that God is in control, but maybe I start to forget and completely neglect and maybe disbelieve that God is good in his control. And this doesn't have to look like just brooding and not going to church. Man, this could look as simple as in our hearts asking questions like, God, man, why would you let something happen? Like, why would you let something like this happen? 
Why would you let this happen to me? What, God, what did I do to deserve this? It's the basic doubt that God is good because we're wrestling with the brokenness of the world. And his goodness is ultimately seen in the reality that he's the one that has overcome the brokenness of the world. That's the irony, right? Is is that, man, while we're sitting here frustrated about brokenness and sometimes blaming and calling God into question, the irony is that it's only by his work on the cross that we have even the hope to overcome the brokenness of the world. Friends, what would happen in our lives if God's character, okay, if God's character was the thing that we clung to in the middle of our suffering, what would it look like for us to give him glory and praise even when we're feeling weak and small, for us to acknowledge his control and to to really accept and welcome the hand of a healing God that is in control of our situation? And what would that look like? Well, we can get there. We have that opportunity. Uh, But what we gain from the scripture is that in order to take advantage of that opportunity, we have to be rooted in the word. Because this group, they were rooted in the word. Um, Check this out. Check out verse 25 uh, through 28. It says, You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, Uh, your servant. Why do the Gentiles rage and the apostles plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, this city, both in this city, uh, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed 28, do you to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place? Check this out. Man, their prayer came from a place. In addition, man, their remembrance and and, and their knowledge of God's character came from a place of being rooted in Scripture. Okay, this prayer is really built around uh, the quote that we have in verses 25 through 26. And that quote, the part that says, why do the Gentiles rage and ends with the against his Messiah, comes from Psalm 2, a powerful poem about uh, the, the coming Messiah. Uh, and, and Psalms start, that Psalm specifically starts with a line of questioning about the nations being enraged and how they're plotting against God. And this Psalm really comes from a cultural view uh, that, that the people of Israel, right, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. Man, that they uh, had been selected by God, and as a consequence of being chosen by God, they were placed in the middle of uh, the brokenness of the world, really in order uh, for God to show the world, uh, amongst all this brokenness, how he was going to make things right. Man, I love how N.T. Wright, a a professor and scholar, um, details or describes this section of Acts He says, Psalm 2 begins by questioning before God why the nations are in such an uproar and the rulers scheming and plotting. This question stands within a long Jewish tradition in which God places his chosen people amidst the warring and violent nations of the earth as a sign of his coming kingdom, the sovereign rule by which he will eventually bring peace and justice to the world. Do you see that? Do you see what happens here? Like, like, think about what I just said. Think about what this man just said. Okay, like, like 
What that means is the apostles, through their, their rootedness in Scripture, were able to pull out the truth that God was sovereign, that his rule was good, that through his control, he was bringing about peace and justice in the world. These people were not necessarily, like, like, like they didn't look to safety uh, for hope, they looked to Scripture. Right, right. Their, their, their trust was not rooted in safety. It was rooted in scripture. Like, like, think about that. How many of us can legitimately look at our lives, even in the midst of suffering, and say, man, I, I'm not trusting safety. I'm trusting scripture. And friends, this is why it can seem like we harp on the idea of being in your Bible so much. Right? I know that it can get overwhelming, maybe even overbearing. Every week it seems like reading the Bible is an application point to the scripture. But friends, it is. It is. I mean, we're not just trying to be annoying or trying to make you like do more Christian stuff. The reality is when we are rooted in scripture, our hearts are often rooted in traditions, thoughts, beliefs, teachings that have really changed and formed the lives and hearts and minds of believers for thousands of years. That's what happens when we engage scripture. It helps us see and cling to the realities and truths of who God is especially in moments where those realities are going to be called into question, moments like suffering. And so these people, having glorified God, right, really by being rooted in Scripture, they're in a position now where they're able to trust God with their lives, to trust God with their lives. Check out verse 20, verses 29 and 30. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand of, for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, having acknowledged God's power, okay, having given him praise and, and, and really like giving him honor, uh, man, they're even, they're able to ask for more boldness. Now, now this may seem shocking to you, and if it isn't, then it should be, because what they're asking for is really in their moment of suffering, saying, God, if it's your will, give us more suffering, okay? Be because legitimately, they didn't know what the Jewish religious leaders were going to do. They didn't know the plan of the, the Roman leaders. What they knew uh, is that they had to trust God and that in that trusting, whatever was going to come next was going to be good, whether it was death or whether it was paradise. But to acknowledge God, his power, his control, his goodness, his justice, it freed them to know that whether it was death or paradise that came next, it was going to be good because he is good. They had something that God had promised them something that members of a oppressed, discriminated against a group like poor Jews in the Roman Empire would have been longing for, and that's hope. They had hope, and it didn't necessarily look like what they thought it was going to look like. Okay, they had to learn the valuable lesson that hope is not the absence of pain, but the presence of promise. I'm going to say that again. They had to, to learn the valuable lesson, maybe even painstakingly, that hope is not the absence of pain, but the presence of promise. It's the presence of the promise of victory, the promise of a better future, the promise of healing, redemption, restoration. If not in this life, then in the next one. But because of the hope they had, they were able to trust God with their lives. And look at what happened once they did. 
Okay, once they were able to glorify God, being rooted in scripture, once they were able to see and cling to God's character and give their lives, trust their lives into the hands of God, take a look at what happened. In verse 31, it says, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. Friends, we don't know if this shaking was a literal shaking or if it was an emotional or spiritual shaking, but that's not the point. The point that the author of Acts is trying to make is that in the middle of suffering and in the middle of fear, when, 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 when humility had, had taken its place, when, when they were giving God praise and glory, when, when they were looking at Scripture when God, show us who you are, and when they had had so much trust that they were willing to, to give their lives over to God, that God responded. God responded to their, 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 their giving their lives over to him. He responded by, by drawing them near. He responded by holding them close. He responded by being present, by, by bringing them and giving them boldness and courage. Man, he, he responded by, by emboldening them and making them courageous. And friends, I want you to know, man, that today God desires to minister to your heart in this exact same way. Man, he desires for you to trust him with your life and to cry out to him and to not be scared to release tears and to release questions and to invite him into the brokenness and sadness of your heart because he desires to provide for you the same hope that he provided for them, to provide for you the same promises that he provided to them, to provide you the same care that he provided to them, and to provide you the same courage, the same boldness, the same strength that he provided to them. But the only way that we can do that the only way we can actually feel that presence of Jesus caring for us, calming us, ministering to us is when we are clinging to Jesus. The only time and the only space we really open up and invite the Lord to, to work in our hearts like this is when we uh, recognize his goodness, when we acknowledge his power and then trust our lives to him. Sorry, I got a little hot right there. I ain't gonna act like I didn't got a little hot, all right? Man, but, but I want this to sink in for you, friends. I want this to sink in. That the shaking, the filling with the spirit, the, the courage, the boldness, man, really the ministry to the heart that God gives to the apostles here is not limited to the apostles here. Man, he desires to move on your heart in the middle of your suffering right now, wherever you are watching this video, hearing my voice. That's his desire. Friend, I'm inviting you. He is inviting you into the space where you are able to surrender your life to him, trusting that he is good, trusting that he is in control, and inviting him, therefore, into ministering and shaping and caring for your heart. I want to close today by actual, actually um, inviting you into a little bit of what I was reminded of and I was preparing this week. Um, a lot of you guys know that I am a huge fan of the musical Hamilton, the best piece of art ever, just the best thing. Uh, coming out on Disney Plus on July 3rd, happy 4th of July. Um, but but kind of to prepare myself for, for the experience of watching Hamilton, right? I started reading... Uh, Ron Chernow's autobiography of Alexander Hamilton, the biography that the musical is actually based on. And I got to say, if you have time, I encourage you to go read this. It's a spectacular book. Um, but 
the reason it came to mind as I was preparing this sermon is because what you begin to learn as you read about Alexander Hamilton's life is how it was truly marked by repeated and serious suffering. Okay, born in the Caribbean in San Croix, uh, his father deserts their family when he's a young, when he's a boy, really. Later on, his mother dies. After that, he moves in with a cousin. That cousin commits suicide. He moves in with an aunt and uncle. That aunt and uncle cut him and his brother out of their will and send them really out to make it on their own. And it's this, it's, this, it's this experience with suffering that begins to build a lot of the sinful responses that we talked about earlier, right? He begins to become so resentful toward humanity and toward circumstance and toward what life is really like that he develops a deep sense of self-reliance and starts to view suffering as the, this, a kind of means by which he can use it to advance his life further, he even begins to write letters to friends uh, describing how he wishes there was a war, an armed conflict of some kind, so that he could join the war and advance through his, his, his service. Um, but he wouldn't have to wait for a war to really experience suffering and use it to get ahead. Um, when he was a teenager, a hurricane came through and, and basically destroyed the island of San Croix. And it was in this moment that a young teenage Alexander Hamilton got a pen and started to write out an essay describing the destruction that was so um, emotionally uh, stirring and moving. It literally moved people to tears on the island. And his pastor, upon realizing that, that young Hamilton was, was so gifted, began to raise monthly subscriptions to send him to the, the mainland, to New York, to get an education. He basically went to school off of like Christian partnership, if you know what that is. Um, and it was in New York that he got caught up into the revolution and eventually joined the service uh, and be, in five short years went from nearly homeless on San Croix to being the right-hand man of George Washington, the most powerful person in America. Um, but none of those challenges would quite prepare him for the greatest challenge of his life that came in 1801 when his son, Philip, was actually shot in a duel and died. And it was at this time that, that Alexander and his wife Eliza, man, if you read about it, it, it's pretty well established that emotionally, spiritually, mentally, they, they, they wrestled with this burden for the rest of their lives. But, but something else happened during that time. An intellectual faith that had been with Hamilton for years and years and years began to become something more of an emotional affection and clinging to the God that he had intellectually known for decades. It was during this time that he began to, to pray with more emphasis, emphatically, with more emotion tied to it. He began, uh, or he continued, but more uh, consistently to go into his garden and to sing hymns of praise and worship uh, uh, every single morning, declaring God's goodness and his character. And really, this all builds up to this climactic moment in 1804 when, when Alexander, like his son, was actually shot in a duel. And on his deathbed, he begins asking um, clergymen across the town for the Lord's Supper, to which for political reasons or for theological reasons, all of them begin to um, deny and to say, no, we can't do that. Until one clergyman, a friend of Alexander, comes to his deathbed and simply tells him, Alexander, you know that, that the Lord's Supper, communion, isn't a requirement for salvation, to which Alexander replies, I know. And then he utters some of his final words. I have a tender reliance on the mercy of the Almighty, 
through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a sinner. I look to him for mercy. In his greatest challenge, in the one in which he would not recover, the hope that the character, the beauty, the power, the message of the gospel gave to Mr. Hamilton was the thing that was going to see him through to the next phase, to the victories that he had felt like he, he reached for so often in his life but could never truly find. He was going to find them through this reliance. Friends, in the middle of our suffering, we are likewise invited. We're called, but we are invited by God to have this same sense of clinging to God Almighty. Through the merits of Jesus, recognizing that we're sinners, but recognizing that through the gospel, he has invited us and changed our position before him as a stranger and an enemy now to a son, to a daughter. Then we recognize that, that God in his character, in his control and in his goodness has now invited us to, to entrust him with our lives, friends. We are freed to navigate suffering well. Not that it will not, not, not have its effect on us. Not that we'll get away unscathed. We're all going to navigate it. We're all going to work through it. But the fact that we are called and invited by God to have such a beautiful position before him, to have such a beautiful trust in him, man, he invites us to a relief that none of us could afford outside of this gospel. Before I pray, before I leave us, um, to, to, to go ahead and worship together uh, in the next scene here. What I want to do is just leave us with a Spanish congregational chant that I heard growing up consistently. It was birthed out of the pain of the Hispanic church, but was used as a reminder of God's goodness and what that, that goodness, what that power, what that greatness means for us. It would start with the pastor simply crying out, vive, and the congregation chanting back Cristo. Y a su nombre, gloria, y a nosotros, la victoria. Translated, it means who lives, Christ, and to his name, glory, and to us, the victory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that because of who you are, we have, been give us, you, we have been given a promise of hope. We have been given a promise of the victories to come. We have been given the promise of the redemption to come, of the restoration that's to come. Uh, God, fill our hearts with, with the reality of your power and your goodness today. God, let us know that, that you are trustworthy and therefore let us surrender our hearts to you. Likewise, in that moment, God, I ask that you would, you would stay, take a step closer to us as we take a step closer to you and minister to our hearts. For those of us that are feeling the weight, God, uh, of suffering right now, I ask that you would just minister to us right now, that you would be close, that, that even as tears fill people's eyes, that you would spiritually uh, wipe those tears away, letting them know that because of who you are, because of what you've done on the cross, the brokenness of the world, the pain that they're feeling, the suffering we wrestle through has been conquered by your blood. We love you. We thank you. We exalt you. We praise you. We glorify you. To your name be the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.